Good morning. We're reading this morning from John chapter 21, uh, verses 15 to 25. And it's the New International Version that we're reading from this morning. And by way of introduction, uh, before the crucifixion, Peter himself denied that he ever knew the Lord. He wasn't his follower. And as we come to our reading this morning, after the resurrection, we now hear the story of Jesus approaching Peter and saying, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? That was fish. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and where you wanted to go, you went. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and said that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had turned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Alan. Good morning. It's better. 
It's good to be with you this morning. It's lovely to see you and to open God's Word together. I do invite you, uh, if you have a Bible, to turn to John chapter 21. It's the last chapter in John's Gospel. As that's where we will be spending our time this morning. Um, If you were here with us last week, you will remember that we discussed painful relationships. And uh, we looked at the unraveling of David's family. And perhaps one of the most difficult, I would imagine, uh, factors for David as he considered the devastation that came to his family was knowing the part he played in it and understanding that God's discipline for him uh, was that the sword would not depart from his house after he had committed adultery and murder. Uh, And so it raises this question, what about our own sins and how do we deal with the pain of those? Uh, One of my favorite verses in the New Testament describes how the sins of some people go before them and the sins of other people go behind them. <laughs> In other words, it's, it's really obvious sometimes to see some sinners miles away. You're like, oh, there's a sinner coming over there. <laughs> I can see him. I can smell him from here. <laughs> the unrighteousness. There's others who are very sinful and you don't even know it at all. <laughs> this is something that we all have to deal with. So we're looking at uh, this idea of being caught, and caught is a terrible feeling. I don't know if you remember that feeling as a kid when your parents or a teacher or a principal or somebody in authority caught you doing something you shouldn't be doing. It's a really bad feeling, isn't it? And, and you, you tend to see humanity at kind of its lowest form right when they're caught. Uh, they, you kind of reduce to the lowest common denominator. Some people, they just, they just opt for de- denial. I, no, I don't have any cookies in my mouth as the, as the crumbs are falling, right? Uh, so, so some people, uh, they, they, they just turn around. They, 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 they cannot face the authority that has caught them. Others will run away. Some people may fight back or respond, but that's a really, really tough feeling to be caught. Uh, but because all of us sin and because God sees everything and he knows everything, there's really no sense in which we will not have our sin found out. Um, But caught also carries this other connotation that has to do with sin, and that is to be hindered, to be in bondage, to be snared, as it were, in our sin. And I think both actually are very fitting uh, ways of understanding the pain that we experience. So I want to talk briefly about um, pain the pain that comes from our sins. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we've been using Matthew Kim's book, uh, Preaching to People in Pain, uh, as kind of a little bit of a template of sort of looking at different types of pain. Um, so if you want to go back, you'll just say, where did they even get this idea? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of thought was from here. Um, and he's got a few points in here to which I'll add a, a couple. Uh, but pain from our sin has a way of holding on to us. It has a way of lingering with us long after it's, it's actually happened. And when we look at our sin 
uh, when our sin is the source of pain, this arises from various factors. I think one of the big ones is, is our personal sin carries with us this dynamic of, of a, a hidden shame, secret shame, or a, or a private struggle. I'll never forget when I was growing up in the States and uh, they were trying to impeach, they did impeach President Bill Clinton at the time, and he came out with this wonderful definition that the West just loved and ate up, which is, he said, you know, there's a difference between your public life and your private life. And what I do in my private life has nothing to do with what I do in my public life. And I think we really embrace that culturally. That's about 20, 30 years ago now. We embrace that, and, and we, many of us live in that, in that dual dynamic. There's who I am when the lights are off, when nobody's home. There's who I am in my own mind and in my own headspace. There's who I am when I'm on the road or when I'm with my mates. And that's different than who I am kind of publicly, and we erect this division. But the reality is when our sinful lives manifest themselves to us, we try to keep a lid on it. When God sees that, we try to keep a lid on it. And this can be a source of pain, this secret shame or a private struggle. Equally true is the public embarrassment that can come from failure. Uh, and so many, many people have been caught and, and they've, they've, they've been found out to be doing something that maybe they didn't seem to be that, ba that bad, but the recoil, the public recoil that they got for that has kind of just continued to live with them. You see this a lot in the Gospels, particularly we looked at last week, where there's a notorious sinner, and, and this woman, she can't go anywhere in the town without people seeing or thinking of what she's done. And so there's this pain that comes from being defined by your sin. Oh, there he goes, he's the adulterer. There she goes, she's the gossip. There, you know, you go and fill in, fill in the blank, right? Um, thirdly, there's a pain that comes from reliving the memory of sins committed. And I, and, and I don't know if you know this from experience, but this is a big one, isn't it? There's, you, you, you flashback in your mind, uh, as Matthew Kim points out in, in his book, you know, why is it we can remember something from 35 years ago, but we can't remember something from 35 minutes ago. But I could take you right back to where I was when I did that thing. And that, that memory just lives in my mind and it just, it, just, it just plays like a reel over and over and over and over. And I wonder if any of us here this morning just caught in that constant wheel, that, that loop. You're just rehearsing, replaying that in your mind over and over again. Um, there's bondage to habitual addictive sins. Um, as the preacher famously said, sin is fun for a while. <laughs> but when it takes over your life, particularly some sins that play into our fleshly desires, we almost can't help it. And so we're mastered by our sin. And there's a pain that comes along with that, being literally enslaved to evil or to wickedness. What about the pain of relapse? You go so long and you work so hard to break free. You're trusting the Lord. Things are going well. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you find yourself right back in the pit. <laughs> right back in the mud and the slop. And then, of course, there is also pain that can come uh, suffering discipline for our sin. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord disciplines his children. 
and that no discipline is pleasant at the time. No one says, ooh, what do you want to do this afternoon? Hey, let's get disciplined. <laughs> right? No, you say, oh, discipline, that's the long game. It's pain right now for the long-term payoff of how I'm going to be formed, how my faith is going to be fired and refined. But there's a pain that comes with discipline for our sin. So before we jump into the text, um, we'll skip this. Before we jump into the text, I want to just take a moment to ask, what's the nature of sin? We're going to use this word a lot, sin. Well, what do we mean by sin? Um, uh, Kevin DeYoung says, sin is always serious. <laughs> um, and then, then I, I added this, because it destroys us and it estranges us from our loving creator, God. Sin's always serious. Even the quote-unquote respectable sins. Maybe you came across that book from Jerry Bridges a few years ago uh, called Respectable Sins. And it's a great, it's a great book. It's, it's all about the little things that we do that are wrong, that, that the Bible calls a, a sin against the Lord, but we just excuse it away because no one's really bothering to police one another on it. Society says it's okay, so go ahead and do it. Um, but sin, we need to know, is always against God first. Right? Because as his creatures, we have an obligation. He has authority over us. He is the one who gives us life. He is the one who establishes us, our existence in his creation. If you stop and think for a moment, you did nothing to get yourself here. Every part of your existence is a gift. And so sin is always against God first. But what, what else do we learn about sin? Uh, it's a rebellion. It is a denial of the Lord. Any sin is, is going to be a rejection. Now, First John chapter 3 will describe sin as lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is saying, I have no authority over me. Sin is saying, I can do whatever I want. And according to the book of Judges, people will do what is right in their own eyes. Sin also reflects disordered loves. Sin starts in, in the heart. James says that when you're tempted, you need to be careful. And don't say that God is tempting you because God's not, God's not making that sin on the end of the hook look so attractive. That's your heart and our wicked desires, our, our evil desires that have been corrupted by sin itself. But it's, it's our heart that says, ooh, look at the shiny bad thing that's going to kill me. That sounds great. And James says, be careful because if you, if you allow that desire to take root or to, to really impregnate your soul, then don't be surprised when it begins to conceive and if it gives birth, if, it's, if the conception of this evil in your heart comes to full term, the result is death. So sin is, uh, re reflects disordered loves. It is the fruit of evil desires. Uh, it corrupts our being and, and ultimately it, it incurs death. That's, that's why sin is always serious. Uh, just because sin is serious doesn't mean grace isn't real. It is very real. But don't allow the reality of grace to diminish the horror of sin. If anything, the horror of sin ought to make us treasure the reality of grace even more. Uh, 
<clears throat> Matthew Kim says this, he says, Sin, sins germinate in the darkest recesses of the mind and the heart. They hide from others and thrive in shadows. They get temporarily lost behind smiling Sunday faces. The troubling truth is that the power of sin still holds us captive. Sins are confounding sources of unarticulated pain and shame. So the big question is, how do we find freedom from sin? And in line with this series, it's pain. The big idea is that Jesus came to free us from sin. He died for the sin of the world. There is enough grace in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself to forgive the sin of the entire world if they would but repent. Jesus came to free us from sin and its power and he came to restore us to life. And what we're going to look at this morning is how the pain of our sin is transformed when we are restored and reconciled to Jesus. That's really going to be the bottom line of everything I'm going to say today. Healing for this pain will only come, only come in your personal encounter with the risen Lord to experience the restoration that only he can bring and give you. So we come to John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25. I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me so that the Lord might uh, hear our prayer and help us as we come to his word. Our loving Father, we are a weary people. Lord, we busy ourselves with so many things in this life and we seldom attend to our soul. But we know that in our souls, there is this insidious thing called sin. And Lord, as we open the scriptures to read of the encounter between Jesus and his disciple, Peter, we pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess that we are all sinners and that we, like Peter, need to be restored. Would you help us? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 15, verses 21, uh, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, it shows the restoring ministry of Jesus in his encounter with Peter after his resurrection. And it's going to unfold really in three stages. The, the, the number three is important. Uh, the number three is important in this chapter. You have three confessions of it is the Lord earlier in this chapter, which so beautifully mirrors Peter's threefold denial. I don't know him. There's also three questions from Jesus. There's three confessions from Peter. And then there's three commissions from Jesus that Peter would feed his sheep or tend his flock. And so we'll sort of look at the questions and then the confession and then the commission. Um, but what I want you to see Jesus doing here is first he probes and then he's going to press and then he's going to preserve. He's going to probe, he's going to press, and he's going to preserve. Uh, look with me as uh, we come to the first section, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, this might seem like an, a normal interaction with us, 
But the way Jesus addresses Peter here is the same way he addressed him when he first saw him all the way back in John chapter 1. Jesus is going to be taking Peter through this conversation on a journey back to the beginning. And he does it initially here by calling him Simon, son of John. He would later say of Peter, he said, your name is going to be Cephas, which means rock. But the rock was a little bit more sand than substance in the hour of his trial, wasn't it? And so he calls him here, he says, Simon, son of John, which was the first way he addressed him when he, very, when he met him at the very start. Now, we didn't start all the way back in verse 1 because I didn't want to, there's so much here, I didn't, wa- didn't want to sort of distract us. But what you need to know is that this is the third resurrection appearance of Jesus in John's gospel. And Jesus here comes to disciples, not all the disciples, not even 11 of the disciples or 10 of the disciples. It comes to seven or maybe eight. And they're fishing here on the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they're fishing. They don't catch anything in the night. Jesus is on the shore. He's made a fire. He's cooking breakfast. He calls out to the guys in the boat. He says, hey, guys, have you caught anything? No, we haven't. Well, why don't you throw the nets onto the right side of the boat, Jesus says. Now, the best fishing was at night. So what happens next is contrary to all expectation of any fisherman. Because when they throw the nets over on the right side of the boat, they then proceed to catch this massive haul of fish, of which they lose none which they actually count, as any good fisherman would, right? We got any fishermen here, right? You have a great catch, what do you do? You photograph it, you measure it, you count it, right? They count the fish here, 153 fish. And, 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 and they start bringing it to shore. The disciple, the beloved disciple in John's gospel says, it is the Lord. He makes the identification, it is the Lord. Peter perks up, he ties his waistcoat, jumps out of the boat, starts running to the shore to meet Jesus. They've since hauled the fish. They've since had breakfast. And so this is a sort of a post-meal conversation. And Jesus initiates it with a question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what does he mean by more than these? Now, with all due respect to you, Alan, I don't think he means the fish. I'll tell you why. Um, There's nothing wrong with fishing, number one. There is no hint in this narrative that the disciples were doing the wrong thing by fishing. It's just just not there. The better case, actually, is to think about what's about to happen in this story, which is the restoration of Peter, and to think about Peter's words in John 13, verse 37, where he says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And if you read the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Luke and Matthew, You'll remember that Jesus says to them, he says, though everybody else may fall away, I will not. And so it makes sense in the context of a breakfast meal where Jesus initiates the question that he's not talking about the fishing gear or the fish, but he's talking about the other disciples. 
as Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Ouch. <laughs> it's a bit of a test. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Notice what's not here. It doesn't have some grand argument. It doesn't have some grand justification. It doesn't try to anticipate where Jesus is going. And, and no, there's just this sort of steady, no, you, you know, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice he's dropped the more than these. As uh, J. Ramsey Michaels points out in his commentary, it's kind of a trick question for Peter, the first one, do you love me more than these? Because if he says yes, well, obviously that wasn't true. If, if he says no, it kind of sounds like, well, maybe he's a lesser disciple or he's not really, he, he doesn't really love Jesus after all. But he just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so what Peter does here is he drops the comparison. He's dropped it. He's humbled. He just says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs again. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice, not, not asking more than these. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, son of, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. What's going on here? We need to see here that Jesus probes our hearts. Rather than questioning what Peter knows, Jesus asks who Peter loves. This is really important. You know, so many times we get caught doing the wrong thing. The conversation goes, well, you should have known better. Well, did you know this? Or did you know that? Did, you know, where was the breakdown in the mechanism? Where, where, where was the issue? Jesus doesn't ask Peter what he knew and what he didn't know. Didn't, didn't know, didn't know. He asks him, do you love me? Sin is so often a heart matter. It's not often an intellect matter. It's not often a knowledge matter. Now, knowledge plays a factor. We're, we're told that we're judged according to what we know and what we don't know. So it plays a part, but the source of sin, the, the, the path to restoration doesn't start with simply rehearsing the information. It goes deeper than that. And so Jesus probes. He cuts right to the chase. He says, do you love me? It's a question. It's not an accusation. Jesus shows that sin arises not simply from a lack of understanding, but from disordered desires or loves in the heart. And so to be restored from our sin requires a diagnosis of the condition of the heart. For Peter, I don't know what it was, but for him following Jesus, it wasn't enough for him to be one of the 12. He had to be better than the others. He had to make sure Jesus knew that he was better than the rest. It wasn't enough that he was called. It wasn't enough that he was chosen. It wasn't enough that he was just there with him. There was something else, and it's that that Jesus is trying to get rid of in Peter's heart. 
It's as if he understands that, Peter, you're going to have trouble following me if you're constantly comparing yourself with other people. You're going to have trouble doing what I've asked you to do if you're constantly needing to justify. If my acceptance of you isn't enough and you need to point to something else, you need to get another metric out. The metric of the other disciples and their faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. And you need to pull that metric out to show me or show yourself that you belong. Jesus knows that Peter's not going to be able to follow if that's in his heart. And so Jesus goes right to the heart. It doesn't just stop there. Oh, sorry, I want to back up. Uh, J.C. Ryle, can I, can I just encourage you, read, read old Christians, like read new Christians too, and, and read current publishing, that's fine, but read old Christians too. You get gems like this. J.C. Ryle, we may know much and do much and profess much and talk much and work much and give much and go through much and make much show in our religion and yet be dead before God from a lack of love and at last go down to the pit. Do we love Christ? That is the great question, he says. Without this, there is no vitality about our Christianity. We are no better than painted wax figures, lifeless stuffed beasts in a museum, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. There is no life where there is no love. Oh, I know about you. I needed to hear that this week. You know, so often we get caught up in the things that we do or the things that we know or the, the, our own plans and our agendas and, and, and our attention and we neglect the, the true great question, which is, do I love Christ? And the good news is the Lord knows. Raul goes on to say, there must be some personal feeling towards Christ. Now, feeling alone, no doubt, is a poor, useless thing, and it may be here today and gone tomorrow, but the entire absence of feeling is a very bad system and speaks ill for the state of a man's soul or a woman's soul. The men and women to whom Paul wrote his epistles had feelings and were not ashamed of them. There was one in heaven whom they loved, and that one was Jesus, the Son of God. If you have no care for Christ, if there's no passion, if there's no, if there's nothing in you, if there's no feeling, as Ryle says, in your heart for Christ, doesn't mean that you're always, you know, it's sunshine and roses and all that. No, 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 no. But if there in your heart isn't something there, that's not a good sign. If you love the church and you can take or leave Jesus, that's not a good sign. If for you this is about the formality, if it's about, if it's about showing up and growing up and, you know, just sort of doing the adult thing and, and trying to be, you know, a good person, if that's what it's about for you and there isn't this heart connection with Jesus, if that hasn't started somewhere, it's not a good sign. And if that's you, I encourage you, hear the question of Jesus to Peter. And put your own name in there. Do you love me? 
And that might be enough for you and I to think on this week. But Jesus continues. He then presses for a confession. Notice, instead of just condemning Peter, right? You would think this is where he comes with the right hook or the uppercut, right? You know, he's, he's sort of setting him up. You know, Muhammad Ali had the rope-a-dope thing, right? You, you, you sort of, you soften him up, jab, jab, jab. Do you love me, Peter? Jab, jab, jab. Oh, well, you think you do? Well, bam, sucker punch. That's how a lot of us might sort of have this conversation, you know, you sort of let the anger seethe under the surface and get ready to pull out the big hammer for the condemnation after you lured them in. There's none of that with Jesus. This is not about condemnation. This is entirely about Jesus pushing Peter to confess, to say with his own mouth what is true in his heart that he loves him. If anything, reminding Peter as he's confessing, Peter reminding himself, I love you, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? You know all things. You know that I love you. For that to come out of his mouth. Now, why was it hard? It was hard because of the third time, wasn't it? The last time we saw Peter in front of a fire, his faith was sinking very fast. Uh, as one by one, sort of the onlookers came up, men and women of no real standing in, in that society, and they approached Peter and said, hey, weren't you with that Jesus guy? No, no, I don't know him. I don't know. No, but you, 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 you kind of talk like him. <laughs> I don't know the man. And finally, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I actually saw you. I think I saw you with some of these other disciples. And Peter begins to call down curses on himself. To swear. To vow that he has nothing to do with Jesus. And so the next time we see Peter in front of a fire, it's Jesus who's at the fire and he's cooking breakfast. And so when he asks the third time, the penny finally drops. You know, maybe the first time, do you love me, Peter, more than these? Well, you know I love you, Lord. Let's not get into that whole comparison thing. No, but, but do you love me? Yes, yes, you know that I love you. And when he asks the same question the third time, he knows doesn't he? This is about what happened before. You see, Peter's going to have a very important part to play in the Lord's plan. And as much as human beings might want to minimize and reduce our sin, to kind of shrink wrap it and put it away, one of the worst messes I, I was ever in was in my own kitchen when my father-in-law decided that we were going to save money as a, as a wider family by purchasing our own cattle. And he bought two cows, and it was time for us to stop paying the prices at the local grocery store for the meat. And so 
He watched a few YouTube videos, bought a few knives, and the next thing we know, I had so much beef sitting in my kitchen, I did not know what to do with it. And of course, we were under a time pressure, and so we couldn't really cut it properly, and we couldn't really package it properly, so we just had to turn it into mints. And it was just mince, 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 and the smell. Let me tell you, it was gross. It was disgusting. And you know what? Every time, every time I think about that story, all I remember is ladling this gross stuff out of the trash can. It was meat. We had to just put it in a trash bag because it was so much. Ladling it into shrink wrap bags, and then it would get shrink wrapped and deposited in the freezer. And you know what? We want to do that with our mess, don't we? We just want to say, I'm just going to contain it. I'm going to quarantine it. I'll put it in, and I'm just going to shrink wrap it, freeze it, stick it away in a box somewhere where I don't have to think about it or deal with it. It would have been tempting for Peter to take that approach. But Jesus isn't going to have it. I cannot tell you how many times I've tried to tell the Lord, hey, sorry about that, and just kind of move along. Now, Lord, can you help me with this? And how many times he said, Jonathan, no, we need to go back. Jonathan, we actually, we, we, we need to revisit this. Jonathan, I got some questions I want to ask you about this. But Lord, look what we got to do over here. Look, I know you've forgiven all my sin. I know there's grace for me. I know there's all this stuff. Why do we got to go back over here? You see, if we never confess it, we never bring it into the light. And if you don't bring it into the light, there's deception going on in your heart and my heart. And when there's deception going on in our hearts, we don't have fellowship with God. We We don't have fellowship with our creator. So don't be surprised if he just brings you back. And he's just bringing you back and just bringing you back. And you know what? Can I tell you some of the dearest, loveliest saints I know who walk with the Lord, do you know what they do? They will just stop and they'll just confess on the spot. (laughs) You'll say, oh, it's not a big deal. No, I need to confess it. Just bear with me here. Let me sit with this thing. Let me just bring it into the light. Let me just confess it. Jesus wants Peter to bring it into the light, not to give him an uppercut or to sucker punch him, not to make him sit with the weight of it. It's not that he's not going to forgive him, but he needs Peter to not sweep it under the rug. And so though it's painful, confession brings our sin into the light where it can be dealt with. The Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh, go to the Psalms. Read the Psalms and read the relief that David feels. The relief of other psalmists when they just acknowledge their sin to the Lord. When they just stop hiding and stop covering it up and they just bring it into the light. And they just, the the language there is, is all restoration. Your hand was heavy on me day and night. My bones ached within me, the psalmist said. You know, he's so convinced that by the end, you know, one of the psalms, the very says, he says, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, turn the searchlight on, put the spotlight on. 
Look, look in the nooks and crannies of my heart and my soul and show me if there's anything wrong. I just want to be clean. I don't want any darkness. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope, I hope you know the joy of being able to bring your sin into the light. Jesus is your, Jesus is your mediator. He, he will advocate for you. His blood is sufficient to cleanse you and for you to be forgiven no matter what it is. No matter what it is. If you go to him. But sometimes we don't go. As John said in his gospel, chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light came into the world, but... Men and women love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, they didn't want to go into the light because they were afraid. But when you know the perfect love of Jesus, you realize that his love casts out fear. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You can go to him and you can be restored. You can have him deal with whatever it is. Your family and friends may cut you off. Jesus won't cut you off if you do that. I'm not trying to scare you. Hopefully the loving people, you forgive you. But finally, <clears throat> Jesus presses, <clears throat> sorry, Jesus preserves our faith. Now, usually the objection to confession is, what are they going to think of me? That's usually the main objection. What, what are they going to think of me? Here, Jesus, he's not interested in salvaging Peter's reputation, <clears throat> He's not really interested in soothing his feelings at the moment. He's not, he isn't bubble wrapping his disciples and saying, you're not allowed to feel hurt over your sin. No, you can feel hurt. But Jesus' concern is Peter's faith, specifically that he continues to follow. Again, we go to the Synoptic Gospels where on, right after, <laughs> right after Peter makes his grand proclamation that he's gonna stand and everybody else falls, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And in Luke's gospel, he, he brings up this discussion with Peter. He says, Satan has desired to sift all of you. That language of sifting is to remove the disciples from Jesus. Satan tries to break the connection between the disciples and between their Lord, their master, Jesus. Jesus said, Satan has desired to sift you. And then interestingly enough, he looks at Peter. He says, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you, singular, Peter, that your faith will not fail. And that after you've been restored, you will strengthen your brothers and sisters. Jesus has known all along what's going on. He's totally aware of what the enemy's end game is. To get disciples to stop trusting in Christ. To stop obeying his word. To stop following in the way that he's leading them. That's exactly what the enemy's trying to do. And Jesus here... By bringing Peter's confession into the light, he's able to restore Peter and get him back on track with what the main thing is. In other words, he's not lagging behind because there's this sin between him and Jesus that he hasn't dealt with. He's in step with the Savior. After Jesus says, you know all things, uh, Peter says, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he gives this pronouncement, verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, this is kind of a general proverb that's, that's not really that unique to scripture. 
about, you know, someone's going to lead you. You used to go where you wanted. Someone's going to lead you. It's kind of a proverb about aging, except for the phrase, and you'll stretch out your hands. Now, whether that's stretch out your hands as if you're being arrested or stretch out your hands as Christian tradition would have it, that Peter suffered death by crucifixion. Either way, Jesus is predicting martyrdom for Peter. John writes, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. He's brought Peter right back to the beginning, isn't he? Hey, Simon, son of John, follow me. We're right back at the beginning. You mean after all this, after all that he's seen and all that he's gone through, all the, all the ups and downs, the failures and victories and triumphs, what's Jesus say to Peter? Follow me. You're going to be martyred. Follow me. Literally, follow me. Now, what's interesting here is <laughs> the setting and there's so many layers to this. is very common in John's gospel. You have what's going on super on the surface of the text, and then you have what's going on in, in, for the reader and what's happening. It's, it's such an intricately uh, woven gospel. So when Jesus says, follow me, Peter gets up and says, sweet, let's just keep walking on the beach. This is a great conversation. Peter turns in verse 20 and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. After an identification, verse 21 says, Peter saw him and asked, Lord, what about him? And if there was ever a scripture <laughs> to point out how like sheep we are so prone to go astray, after he's been restored from, <laughs> after his confession about his pride for having say, for boasting about how much better he is than the other disciples, after the instruction from Jesus to follow him, what's Peter doing? He's not looking at Jesus. He's looking back at the other disciples and he's comparing again. Oh, what about him? <laughs> It's just so beautifully human, isn't it? <laughs> like, Jesus doesn't let him change the subject, as one commentator said. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? That's great parent reasoning right there. I love that. <laughs> if I want them to get two helpings of dessert, what's that to you? <laughs> If I'm going to buy them more Christmas presents than you, what's that to you? <laughs> In other words, none of your business, Peter. You must follow me. And the you here is emphatic. Meaning, it's the equivalent of Jesus looking Peter in the eye and saying, you, you follow me. Jesus is preserving his faith. Now we know after Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter's going to stand up and he's going to speak on behalf of the group. We know that he's been given the charge to care for these other disciples. Peter, of all the disciples, probably has the most pastoral function in the early church. 
The Apostle John's going to go on to live a very long life. He's going he's to record and write down this beautiful gospel. He's going to have a great ministry of correspondence and probably have a school of other people. But Peter's going to be a shepherd and he's going to be a martyr. And so ironically, strangely, Peter's words would come true. In John 13, 37, when he rose up his hand, he said, I will lay down my life for you. He was right. But he was right on Jesus' terms, not on his terms. You see, on his terms, he was saying, you can count on me. I am exceptional. I don't know about this riffraff you brought in with you. I don't know about this zealot guy. He's a bit weird. Judas Iscariot, we all know he pinches pennies out of the purse, right? But me, you can count on me, he says. <laughs> Jesus says, no, you'll lay down your life for me, but it's going to be on my terms. It's going to be as a shepherd. It's going to be as someone who cares, someone who sets an example, someone who would literally follow in the steps of Jesus to his own crucifixion to bring glory to God. He lived three decades with this prophecy of Jesus over his head. Have you thought about that? You woke up tomorrow and Jesus said, you're gonna be martyred for your faith. He had three decades worth of pressure, three decades worth of, of considering, is this worth it? Three decades to, to, to perhaps be tempted to go back to that first fireside moment in the courtyard where he denied the name of Jesus. Three decades to think about that. But you know what? I bet you every time he thought about that, he then thought about this. Saying, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus saying, his last words in this gospel, you follow me. It's a picture of restoration. D.I. Carson says, Jesus' concluding words to Peter, follow me. It may invite him for a private walk along the beach, but in the context of the book, they do more. They tie this step of discipleship to Jesus' initial call and they challenge Peter to consistent discipleship until the martyr he now faces comes due. And it implicitly, and this is what I want you to get, brothers and sisters, it implicitly invites every waverer, every reader, to the same steadfast pursuit. His call to Peter is his call to us. You see, there was a time in your life when you first heard the call of Jesus and the Spirit of God spoke to your soul and it said, the Lord Christ himself is calling you. He's calling you to belong to him. He's calling you to be his disciple. He's calling you to put your faith in him and he's calling you to follow him. I don't know if that was three weeks ago or that was 80 years ago. I have no idea. It's the same call. We will stumble, we will fall, but the one who knows the Lord knows that he himself will restore him, will restore her, and that we will behold him in glory. 
Just a couple brief things. This is the review. Jesus probes the heart, he presses for a confession, and he preserves faith. Just by way of application, just encourage you to run to the Lord. If you want a picture of what running to the Lord looks like, imagine Peter, he's got the biggest catch of fish ever in his life. It's, it's, it's hanging there on the side of the boat. It's nearly threatening to drown everyone. And he's not even fully dressed. And he jumps out of the boat and he runs to Jesus. You may need to drop what you're doing. It might not be convenient right now. You know, so many of us, we plot our return to Jesus. We say, you know, well, let's see. Lord, I got three days off between Christmas and New Year's, and I'd love to set a time with you then. But maybe the Lord's there on the beach now, and he's just, and you see him, and he's calling. Just, just run. Just go. You can leave now. I don't care. Second, walk in the light. Read First John 1, 2, and 3. A lot about this. Break the cycle. If you're in the context of an addictive sin and it's got on top of you and you need help, can I just, can I just encourage you? Ask for help. There are, there are many ways that can help you break the cycle. It's going to be the Lord who will set you free. But right now, you might just need, to, you might just need an intervention to stop. And that's okay because we all get We all get this power of sin. And finally, I just encourage you to embrace community. The Bible says that the church has a role in in bearing one another's burdens. Part of that is just being able to share with one another when we fall and when we stumble and when we need help, when we get it wrong. I encourage you, find a group of people. Find some brothers and sisters. Find one. If you don't know any, that's why the pastors are here. You You can just... We are available to you. We would love to help you embrace community. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we wrap this series up on pain and we uh, just acknowledge that you have been so good to us. Would you restore our weary hearts? Father, for any of you who are here that are feeling very confused by their sin right now and they just don't know where up is and where down is and and they feel really like they're scrambling. I pray, God, that you would just create a, <laughs> create a sure moment, Lord, a campfire moment with you, where they can just sit and be, hear what you have to ask, and receive your invitation to follow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.